Hi there. This episode of the podcast again is brought to you by A Life of Education. Alifeofeducation.com is the UAE's only dedicated health and fitness educational website, delivering health and fitness content to fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts from a variety of sections of the health and fitness world, with talks and lectures in areas of nutrition, anatomy and physiology, sports medicine, female development, yoga and pilates, the business of fitness, strength and conditioning, and many more to be added in the future. Allo's mission is to bring leading experts from around the world of health and fitness together on one platform to bring uh, to share their knowledge and expertise on a global scale. And again, if you go over to www.aliveeducation.com, complete the form that's there, you can be in with a chance to win a Fitbit Ionic um, in the run-up to uh, Live Education's launch. This episode today is with Cliff Harvey. And Cliff Harvey's from New Zealand. He's a registered clinical nutritionist, um, and he's got a PhD research in nutrition at AUT University. He's got a he's one of the first um, ketogenic guys to start working with and prescribing kind of low carb, high fat ketogenic diets back in the late nineties. Um, so he has a huge amount of experience and research done. Um, his current research is, is on uh, mid chain triglycerides. Uh, keto induction, keto flu, and appropriate carb intake for individuals based on their metabolic state. And also, he's done a lot of work in the ethnogenetic uh, factors regarding to nutrition. So that is kind of what people's genetic gene pool predisposes them to what kind of diet and how they eat, which is quite big in New Zealand with the different... uh, the different populations down there and also quite big in the kind of the middle east region as well with so many expats and arabic uh, backgrounds so um we'll get on with it um this again is myself matt at the mefit pro summit and we're with uh cliff harvey We're back again. Um, again, at the Fit Pro Summit. I don't know how many podcasts we've done now. Uh, Twenty now. Yeah, potentially, but we're yeah still at the Jamara Creekside Hotel, um, and we're with Cliff um, Cliff Harvey. Hey guys, Cliff Harvey's not from Australia, as I made the mistake just now. He's from New Zealand, um, so I'll apologise about that. I know what that feeling is like. I get asked if I'm from England. Same thing. It's Same the, thing. Yeah, and it's like yeah, a, you, you don't sound like you're from England. No, but to, to your ears, but to uh, to the local people, local yeah. population here. Oh, are you from the UK? Um, no, no. Bite my tongue. No big <laughs> deal. People get it wrong. No, um, we kind of get used to that. You know, the, the typical question is, so where are you from in Australia? Um, yeah. yeah, the place that's not Australia. That whole other country. <laughs> oh, you're just next door. No, nah, it's really far away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, what have you? You're a nutrition. Clinical nutrition, nutritionist, yep. is that, I'm butchering that term. No, you got it bang on, I'm a clinical nutritionist. Clinical, yep. And you're doing a lot of research at the moment in uh, ketogenic diet, low-carb diets. Yeah, so I, I was I was probably the first nutritionist to start working with ketogenic and low-carb diets in New Zealand, probably Australasia, back in the late 1990s. Sure. And um, as you can imagine, back then, that was pretty crazy, so yeah. I didn't really have... Um, a lot of pathways into academia at that point. Um, so I was very much in clinical practice, but I was lucky enough to work with, you know, many of our Olympic athletes and top-level yeah. athletes, professionals, but also a lot of people, obviously, with chronic health conditions. So I was able to help a lot of people over the years, and it was about five or so years ago that uh, the team up at AUT University were really starting to investigate low-carb and ketogenic diets. Uh, they had previously thought I was crazy, so you know they, they knew that I was in the space, and so they invited me up to talk about research and formulating some some projects up there. And so I went on with them and uh, did some higher study, did my master's degree in uh, medium chain triglycerides and ketogenesis, and then the doctoral studies in ketogenesis as well, ketogenic sure. diets, but particularly in the area of helping people to define what their carb intake should be. 
because you know it's not all about keto it's not all about low carb some people absolutely thrive on a high carb diet yeah. so my research and my focus and practice is really to help people to figure out where they should be on that spectrum right that's so interesting you're, you're dr cliff Hart. Not, not quite yet. I'm not doctoral, yet. doctoral candidate, Cliff Harvey. Ah, okay. I've got um, running a final study at the moment, so I should have my write-up done by, say, May, June. Cool, awesome. Yeah. One thing you just said very quickly there, medium-chain triglycerides, that's this MCT fast that people are kind of trying to get more and more in tune with as to kind of what is an MCT fat bulletproof coffee and all that with yeah the so that's exactly my, my first because um, it's really good to have you now I'm looking forward to getting into this but my first introduction to ketones came uh, I want to say 2005 but I was doing a dissertation on uh, diabetes yeah people confronted with tra- addressing the training exercise regimes of people confronted with type 1 diabetes and part of that research was understanding what happens when the body goes into a hypoglycemic kind of low carb intake ketones ketogenic and it was very much a dangerous thing it was very much a warning time once you're there maybe it's it's different for diabetes you'll be able to kind of remind me it was so long ago but that was where when i first heard the term recently it took me back to that that that's the the ketogenic part of the brain so if you want to just maybe touch on what is ketone you'll be better off explaining it to me butchering it again yeah, so basically the, the state of ketosis is when the body's in a state of carbohydrate restriction, right? So whether that's through fasting or through dietary restriction of carbohydrate, the, the, the brain and central nervous system in particular needs fuel. So the body will start to produce ketones that can fuel the central nervous system uh, in the absence of having that much more glucose. And so that's a, actually a pretty normal physiological state. You know, that the human animal in its natural environment would have gone in and out of ketosis very frequently. And it was just a survival necessity for it to do that. Sure. When you talk about the diabetic situation, it's quite a different state. Yeah. And unfortunately, we, we still often see in our undergrad textbooks that sort of blanket statement that ketosis is bad because yeah. of all these reasons. And we only see it in uncontrolled type 1 diabetics. Yeah. But that level of rampant runaway ketone production in type 1 diabetes is orders of magnitude different to the the low-grade level that will produce as a result of dietary restriction of carbohydrate. So the difference really is at least a sort of, you know, 20 to sort of fourfold difference at the very highest levels of ketosis um, before it becomes that ketoacidosis, which is that negative pathological state. So they're, they're quite different. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what it was. It was the the warning signs because it was obviously we're looking at people who are yeah. who are insulin uh, insulin uh, resistant. So it was when you have this, this is a marker that you are now in trouble. Yeah. So that was the and the pr- cloak it has for, for prudence back in the day. It, it would have made sense to look for that because yeah. let's face it, back in the seventies, eighties. Not many people were doing ketogenic diets. So sure. if you're a doctor and you start seeing ketone levels in the blood, you're not going to think, oh, well, the person's doing intermittent fasting or they're doing yeah. a ketogenic diet. You're going to think, shit, they're, they're not controlled and we need to up their insulin. Yeah. So then um, how does the level of ketosis affect someone's kind of, how would you get yourself into that and why would you go for that approach as opposed to just calorie deficit? Yeah, well, it's a good question because at the end of the day, any calorie restriction is going to result in fat loss, right? And I think one of the challenges we have is that people cling to their favorite diet and they think it's magical, right? But we know that's not not correct. But there are compelling reasons why we might want to investigate the ketogenic diet or we might want to use the ketogenic diet in certain states. There's obviously disease states like epilepsy uh, where the ketogenic diet, you know, is absolutely proven to reduce seizure frequency and intensity Uh, there's a lot of emerging research that ketogenic diets or the presence of ketones in the blood can improve outcomes for alzheimer's parkinson's disease autism adhd you know there might be a potential role from the use of ketogenic diets in in cancer and particularly certain types of cancer so there's a lot of you know treatment reasons why we might use a ketogenic diet for your average punter, um, a ketogenic diet can be extraordinarily effective for rapid weight loss. Yeah. You know, it can be extraordinarily effective for losing fat. And for people who are insulin resistant, so people on that spectrum of metabolic syndrome, there's been more than enough research now for us to conclude that if you're insulin resistant, you benefit from a low-carb diet. If you're insulin sensitive, you may actually be better off on a high-carb, low-fat diet. 
Mm. You know, you, you'll probably lose more body fat and have better changes in blood markers. But a lot of people nowadays are progressing towards that spectrum of metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then they probably benefit from a low-carb diet. They may benefit from a ketogenic diet because it could have other benefits with respect to improving their cognition, improving their mental performance. Uh, one of the things that we see quite commonly is that when people are on low-carb and particularly ketogenic diets, they tend to eat less, right? They yeah. auto-regulate their calories. So we see that in the comparison of studies that, say, have a ketogenic diet where they're told to eat as much as they desire, ad libitum, or in comparison are on a calorie-restricted best practice diet, which is typically high-carb, low-fat. The people on the ketogenic diet end up eating about the same amount as the calorie-restricted people, but they didn't mean to. Yeah. Sure. So that's cool, right? Because one of the biggest challenges we have in nutrition is getting people to be compliant mm. and to make it easier for people. So I sure. think anything that increases satiety, makes auto-regulation of calories more easy, is a good yeah. thing to look into. And what's happening in the brain then, like when you when you have these sort of favorable adaptations to like Alzheimer's and epileptics? And there's a couple of things happening. Um, ketones are incredibly easily used by neurons, mm. right? In comparison to the standard fats that we have in the diet and the fats that are floating around, which are long-chain fats, yeah. they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. Right. So they can't get into the brain, and so they're not used by the brain and central nervous system. If they could get in, they could be used, but that would not be a good situation because uh, they require a lot of oxygen for their use. That can create, over time, oxidative damage. It can create hypoxia in neurons. So there can be damage resulting from having fat for fuel in the brain. Sure. However, ketones for fuel in the brain can be used incredibly effectively. They don't have that raft of oxidative problems. They don't create glycation in the brain. So when we rely on glucose and uh, let's, you know, we're eating too much, if we're eating appropriately, it's fine. But if we're eating too much carbohydrate, too much sugar, that can create damage in tissue as well through glycation. You know, So ketones can basically provide lots of fuel. Because they provide more fuel than glucose by weight, there's also more adenosine floating around in the brain. Now, adenosine yeah. is a relaxing hormone, so there's relaxative effects as well. Uh, that presence of ketones in the brain also changes the GABA to glutamate ratio, right. and that means that we have even further relaxation of neurons, which is a positive thing, because a lot of people have a little bit too much glutamate and not enough GABA in the brain. Yeah. So there's about you know three or four mechanisms by which it works, but it's incredibly effective. Yeah, yeah. So GABA being kind of the neurotransmitter that's kind of relaxing and... Honestly, exactly. Was it gamma amino butyric acid? Gamma amino butyric acid, yeah. Butyric, I never pronounced that. <laughs> So then, okay, so that's the technical side of that. How do you explain that to people in layman's terms? Like, how would you explain that to your clients across the table? I typically do explain things pretty technically, but then I bring it down. So I'll basically say, you know, when we have more ketones available, the, the, the brain can use that for fuel. It provides more fuel than the usual fuel, which is sugar or, or glucose. And as a result of that, you have these relaxing hormones that are also present. So the... The short end of that long story is your brain will basically be fueled without having to run the risk of having too much carbohydrate there. Okay. So then uh, that's for a weight loss and a performance kind of alertness standpoint. What about endurance sports? Yeah, endurance sports are an interesting one because typically we would say that, or I would say, that carbohydrates are to some degree activity dependent, mm. right? The more activity you do, the more resilient you are in the presence of carbohydrate and probably the more you benefit from having higher carbs in the diet. But in extreme examples of endurance activity, you, you probably can get by with the survival shuffle. You know, you're moving pretty slow, but over a long, long, long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And you're probably predominantly using fat for fuel. And so the more fat adapted you can be, and if you can have alternate fuels like ketones as well, they provide a really interesting crossover fuel between sugar, glucose, and between those other fats. So a ketogenic diet for performance is probably most beneficial for endurance athletes, extreme endurance athletes. But even then, we see a remarkable variation between individuals. So again, it comes down to the individual, what their ethnicity and genetics are, and how well, how well they particularly respond to either higher or lower carb diets. Is, is there one particular sort of quality that kind of makes somebody more kind of suited for ketones or ketosis? Yeah, I think uh, 
in terms of metabolic state, you know, we know that the more insulin resistant you are, even if you're not diabetic or pre-diabetic necessarily, but if you're on that spectrum of being more insulin resistant, you benefit more from a low carb diet. If you're very insulin sensitive, you probably benefit more from a higher carb diet. Um, Certain, you know, ethnicities and genetic profiles will probably benefit more from higher carb intakes as well. So if we're looking at East Asian populations, typically they've eaten so much rice for such a long period of time, they're very yeah. well adapted to doing that. Kind of like Northern Europeans and milk and dairy, right? Like exactly. Been in the, like the, the diet for so long, for so many centuries, that you just kind of adapt to it. Exactly. And that, you know, that adaptation happened relatively quickly in the, yeah. in the context of evolution. It still took probably a couple of hundred years, but that's pretty rapid yeah. for, for evolution. Whereas you have other populations like the Inuit who eat practically no carbohydrate at all, about 6% of their diet. So it would be unlikely that to get an Inuit athlete and suddenly put them on a sort of best practice performance diet of 65% calories from carbohydrate, yeah. very unlikely that that's going to benefit that person. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And what are the biggest mistakes? And I mean, it, certainly when I went through uh, doing sort of a ketone diet, like it's, it's kind of the fat, getting the fat in seems to be the challenge that at least most people sort of seem to suffer with, right? Like trying to replace the carbs with appropriate amounts of fat. Like do you have any sort of like kind of tips on that front or... Yeah, I think that that really comes from, I think what I see in practice at least, is that comes from our resistance to fat over time. You know, yeah. People have been trained so much to avoid fat that when they're presented with a diet that's, let's say, three quarters or more fat, yeah. it's really challenging. Sure. And so it's just a process of education. Um, I think, though, that in my experience, a lot of people can get into a ketogenic diet and stick to it relatively well. Yeah. And we see that in our research as well. And I think one of the reasons for that is we've been told over such a long period of time to moderate, to control portions, you know, to do all those types of strategies, to eat frequently through the day. Yeah, yeah. That's quite challenging for people. You know, if you're eating six meals a day, that's hard to prepare. You know, if you're having to moderate everything through the day, you never feel really full or satisfied. Yeah. And um, to, to, to moderate can be quite hard for people in a personality sense a lot of people aren't born moderators they're much better at at abstinence sure so when you can say to people look here's what foods are high in carbs just avoid those and here's a compendium of foods that you can eat and pretty much go for it just make sure you're adding you know some extra oil to your meals or some extra mayo or whatever it happens to be that can actually be quite an easy thing for people to do. Yeah. And what we're actually beginning to see now in in the research is that the the idea that ketogenic or low-carb diets are hard to stick to and they don't have very good adherence is rubbish. Right. It's hard for people to stick to diets anyway, yeah. but it's not like the ketogenic or low-carb diets are harder to stick to. In some cases, they can be easier. Sure. And so what, what are your go-to sort of foods then like in terms of like high fat? Like what do you recommend people sort of start filling up on? I think most importantly... People need to stop removing fat from things, Yeah. right? So your basic ketogenic meal is going to really be based around typically meat without the fat removed. So let's say, you know, chicken with the skin on, Sure. adding some good quality fat to that. And you don't need a lot necessarily because if you have a, a chicken breast with the skin on, for example, you might already be getting, let's say, 30 grams of protein, 15 grams of fat in there. You need only about one or two tablespoons of oil added to that to make it a yeah. ketogenic meal. So it's not a lot. You know, you have a little bit of olive oil on your salad, have a little bit of olive oil on your veggies there. You've basically got a ketogenic meal. One thing that I always specify with my clients and in our research as well is that you do not want to restrict vegetables. Right. I think that's something that people do on a low-carb diet that is completely unnecessary because they're so freaked out about the carbs. Yeah, they eliminate yeah. all the veggies as well. But that little bit of carb they get from the veggies isn't going to make an impact. Right. And they're going to be so much better off getting those vitamins and minerals and fibers. So you would say just eat as many vegetables as you want or would you still restrict, like restrict it to a certain extent? No, I, I would typically say eat as much as you want and yeah. we would take that into account with everything else. Right. So, And when we do that, if people are eating the, the recommended amount of vegetables, which I'd say is at least six fist-sized servings a day, yeah. trying to get up closer to, say, nine, uh, there's still they're still unlikely to go over that critical threshold of carbs that they can take in. Sure, which so is what? Um, it depends on the individual because yeah. in terms of a gram number, I don't really get into the gram game. Okay. 
Some people do, of course, and you would have heard that. You know, people say, "Oh, to be on a keto diet, you should have under twenty grams of carbs, That's or under what fifty, I was doing. or under a yeah. hundred. For me, I think it's more appropriate to look at the percentage of calories, right? Because if you have a higher or lower calorie intake, that's going to change the grams quite a lot, right? If it's mm. a percentage, and when we look at what actually gets people into ketosis, it is having a low enough percentage of calories from carbs and a high enough percentage from fat. So let's say on a very strict ketogenic diet, it might be at least 75% calories from fat and Mm. let's say 5% calories from carbohydrate. But that can be relaxed a lot because if people are using intermittent fasting or they're using, as you suggested before, medium chain triglycerides, that allows them to be in ketosis a lot more easily without having to have quite the same level of restriction. Sure. Have you ever had a vegetarian try to go on a ketogenic diet? I've had loads. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, how does that work? How does that? Um, cheese. Yeah, well, I mean, lacto-ovo makes it pretty easy. You know, right. if you're having cheese and you're eating a lot of eggs and then you are getting some level of protein, like a lot of vegetarian or even vegan keto people are having pretty low levels of protein, but that's because they are okay with lower levels of protein. Right. So they might be deriving their protein predominantly from uh, nuts and seeds, for example. Sure. Or occasionally still having some some legumes, but in the sprouted form. So right. that makes them slightly higher in protein, slightly lower in carbohydrate. They're still within the context of the ketogenic diet. We would sort of consider them to be almost like vegetables. Yeah. And then just loading up on the on the oils. Loading up on the olive oil, the flaxseed oil, the hempseed oil. That must be a crazy restrictive type. If you're a vegan ketogenic diet yeah i mean i couldn't do it straight yeah. up you know just not that i want beans. to anyway but i do have um i've got students who do that and they they do incredibly well on it and they eat a truckload of veggies yeah yeah i can imagine and a truckload of veggies with a lot of good fat added to it yeah just shit loads of oil and loads of beans and also the yeah. fridge just must be full of beans soaking like it's on a <laughs> yeah. constant sort of basis right yeah that's the ball with beans, soaking them overnight, and doing all that sort of stuff. How do you deal with uh, how do you deal with the response when you ref- um, recommend this to people? Because um, we've spoken about it with my clients, and it's like I need carbs. Yeah, I'm like, do you? <laughs> yeah. what, 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 what's your response to that? I'm pretty lucky in that you know I've been doing this for so long that people kind of know what they're going to get right so they know that it's likely that there's going to be some degree of carb restriction right and not always of course because some people like i said do thrive on a higher carb diet but a lot of people are coming to me wanting to know more about low carb and ketogenic diets anyway so they're already partially sold the times when i'll get a bit of a bit of blowback i guess is when i'm presenting you know i fly around the world give a lot of talks a lot of workshops and that's where people will say you know i just couldn't get by without carbohydrate what I typically reply to that is that if you can't get by without carbohydrate, that might be telling us that something's not working yeah, sure. well. You know, if you have your big carb breakfast and then half an hour later you're feeling hangry, dude, you, you probably got metabolic disorder, you know. That's not a normal state for the human to be in. Think about, you know, if, if we had a big meal and then half an hour later we felt like we couldn't do anything, we, mm. we wouldn't be alive. We'd yeah, be food yeah. for something else. <laughs> of course. So I think where, where people can start to realize that, that starts to change their whole mindset around food and they start to think, well, yeah, maybe I, I could be more efficient and maybe I could have more stable energy levels. Maybe I could go longer between meals without feeling like absolute crap. Sure. Have you had loads of like haters since What the Health came out? Yeah. A lot, but, it, but that's great. I mean, yeah. I, I loved that film. It was hard to sit through because yeah. it, was, it was rubbish. <laughs> but I loved it because I, I sat down and when it first came out, I sat down and I took notes as I watched it, and then I wrote a rebuttal to it. Yeah, sure. And that was awesome because that obviously alienated some people because some people are so stuck in their confirmation bias, they're not going to listen to anything. Others, it turned them around. They'd been converted by What the Health, and they looked at what I was saying with respect to the science that they presented, and they said, oh, okay, well, maybe that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. And other people who are already sort of on board with what I'm doing, they became raving advocates. Yeah. So I, I dig it. I mean, I love academic debate. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, that, that's because we've had, obviously, this weekend, like, we've been chatting to like, Ben Coomer and stuff, and obviously what the health kind of comes up because it's uh, it's just that sort of show, the same with Cowspiracy and all of that. But I suspect, like, if I was the producers of that show, 
I would probably do it in the same way as well. Like just be really controversial and just kind of say a bunch of stuff because then everybody ends up watching it, right? And then you end up stimulating all of this sort of, sort of debate. You know, you just get the whole conversation going. So you always wonder, did he did he sort of know what he was doing? Kind of calling up those like uh, representatives to just kind of being that way. Yeah. You know, let's just stir the pot. I say more. he did know, but he's completely discredited himself now as a as a movie making professional but it won't like it's not a it's not an open conversation he's having yeah I mean the downside yeah. like we said with Ben Kumba was the fact that there's probably some legitimate points in there about the environment and stuff that kind of yeah. just gets thrown out now you know because of yeah. half the stuff that he did say and I think you know one of the points I made in in my rebuttal is that Exactly that. You know, there are some really good points that come out of it. The biggest one is eat more vegetables, dude. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's everyone agrees on that. Yeah. But when you've got hyperbolic statements like one egg is equivalent to smoking five cigarettes, I'm like, come on, you know. And it just seems very disingenuous. And I think it's interesting that it's the same crew of people every time. It's Neil Barnard, it's Michael Greger, it's all those guys who get trotted out every time. Yeah. And they have really disingenuous names for their organizations. Yeah. Nutritionfacts.org is a vegan advocacy group. Call it the vegan advocacy group, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. The Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has been basically lambasted by the American Medical Association for just being a propaganda organization. Yeah. So at least be straight up about what you're, what you're doing. You know, if I had a, um, an eating animals advocacy group, I'd probably call it something like eat meat, it's cool. You yeah. know, not like the... Nutritionist council yeah. for being yeah, a better yeah. person. <laughs> I guess it just kind of gives it more authority than they, you know, yeah, anything definitely. else. But they're giving it to themselves. It's well, self-appointed it, yeah. authority. It's not yeah, any. Sure. It's not like a credible. It's, it's subversive. I have a lot of a lot of people send me videos from those organisations saying, "Hey, but this is a group of researchers and doctors and scientists and things." And I look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, but it's actually not. You know, yeah. these are a bunch of clinicians who have a particular bias." And that's cool, but at least be straight up about it, I reckon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the fact that they didn't have anybody with any sort of opposing view just giving their thoughts on it as well, I mean, it kind of clearly shows you where they're trying to come from with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's just, we'll just get all the people who are on our side anyway. Yeah, and I, and I did feel a little bit sorry for the health organizations. Yeah. You know, to call up some poor person who's yeah. probably a volunteer, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. did you know? And it's kind of like, I don't know. Why have you got this know. on your website? What, what is your web policy? I just answer the phones, dude. I just like who do you? What's your extension you want to speak to? I just want to help people with cancer. You know, I don't want to be involved with this. Yeah. Yet again, another website doesn't know. It's no, it's not. Come on, mate. I mean, but that's where I think I was surprised. So many people jumped on that. On the like, were swept up by that. I would have thought my friends went vegan after watching it. You know, but to be fair, they used to eat shit, and now they don't. So I guess there's a you know there's a positive from that. Yeah, and as you suggested, I think there are there are many cool reasons to be vegan. Yeah. You know, you don't want to commit harm on an animal personally, so you you go vegan, or you understand that there might be ecological ramifications from the way we create food nowadays. Yeah. So you think that vegan uh, going vegan might be a way to address that. I think that's all really cool, and I would applaud someone for doing any of that. I have a, a different opinion around those issues. Um, but I think if that's the reason, then go for it. Sure. And, you know, like I say, I have lots of students and clients who are vegan, and I think that is absolutely cool. Sure. I, I'm guessing you're on a ketogenic diet? Not, not all the time, no. no. I mean, I use ketogenic diets, and yeah. I have, like I say, for the last 20 years, but that's typically for a defined purpose. So if I'm, you know, wanting to lean up or... Uh, when I was doing a lot more lecturing at the you know, college university level, often I, I wouldn't have a chance to eat as regularly. Yeah. Um, so I'd go on a keto diet because I'd be much more stable for longer and it would be really good for my mental performance and whatnot. So I've used them over the years and I've used them at times for long periods. Sure. You know, We're talking months, years at a time. I typically find though as a baseline I do benefit from some carbohydrate. Right. Uh, I typically don't eat a lot of carbohydrate during the day, almost no carbohydrate during the day, so I'm very low carb. Uh, and s- then I, if I feel like carbs, I have them later in the day. Right. I have them after dinner. Why? Because I t- that's when I typically want them. Sure, and sure. If, if I limit my feeding windows and I have carbs after dinner, I still can't eat enough to get fat, so it doesn't yeah, bother me. Sure. Do you see you've been on it 20 years? I've been working with ketogenic diets for 20 years. How yeah. old are you? I'm 38. 
Really? So I started uh, started working with them as a student right, practitioner. Right, right, right. So when I was at when I was studying and we were beginning to work with clients um, as student practitioners, I started working with low carbon keto diets. What was the gateway point? What was the like your entry into this? Did you stumble across a, a, a specific study? Did you experience something yourself? No, it was it was a couple of things. It was learning about the roles of nutrients when we were studying anatomy, physiology, and basic nutrition, mm. and then going and learning about nutrition prescription and the two didn't really marry up it's kind of like you know this is the role of protein its structure and this is the role of fat its fuel and structure and this is the role of carbohydrate it's basically just fuel and then we go to nutrition class and they'd say you must recommend to your clients that they eat 65 percent plus calories from carbohydrate and so i'd ask questions like um what if someone's not reactive you know surely they don't need more fuel and the, the question wasn't really answered. So I kept asking inconvenient questions, and eventually they kicked me out of nutrition class. <laughs> yeah. What? And, <laughs> and you're, smarter, you're smarter than us. Go outside. Yeah, fast, fast forward 20 years, and um, I'm just completing a doctorate at the same university. So Are they go. still in their job? What's that? Are there lecturers that you had still in the job? Yeah, and, and most of them are, are super cool. Most have of them are rad, and they've, they've learned and grown and evolved. Yeah, yeah, you know? There are, and I mean... I, I'm not saying that they've come around and so now they're on the right track. It's more so that I think we've all evolved. I was probably a little shit as yeah, well yeah. when I was younger. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we all become better. And I think if, if we can continue to learn and just approach science well without a lot of confirmation bias, yeah, sure. be prepared to disprove your hypothesis. That's rad, you know. Yeah. Uh, if we can continue to do that, then we'll just flesh out this area so much more. But it was really just a, a matter of doing the numbers and figuring out at one point that if I optimize my protein intake for performance and give myself the minimum level of fat required or recommended by the International Society of Sports Nutrition to preserve my hormone status, there was not enough calories left to provide for the amount that they told me I should have. So immediately I'm thinking, this doesn't work out mathematically, so I'm going to start looking at different paradigms. Yeah. And then just started mucking around with it, experimented with myself, started using keto diets and experienced interesting results. Started working with morbidly obese clients in my first year in clinical practice, people who were over sort of 250 kilos, Jesus. who had been bounced around from practitioner to practitioner, basically being told to eat really high carb, really low fat, and restrict calories to the nth degree. And obviously they feel terrible, yeah, not yeah. getting results put them on a low-carb diet, bam, things start to work. Sure. And, you know, now we would see in all the evidence that's been accumulated since then, the reason that works is that insulin-resistant people obviously benefit from it. Sure. What's the, what's the largest weight loss kind of story you've had? Then? I had a guy who was, I can't remember exactly, but I think he was approaching, he was definitely mid-200, so he was around two, 250-odd kilos, and he got down to around 120, so really? he was still a big dude, yeah, but yeah, he yeah. lost that amount of fat, having not been able to do it before. And the, the good thing was he was able to maintain that. Jesus. So although he was still a, a large individual, he certainly wasn't at risk like he previously was. Yeah, and what sort of time frame was that? That was probably over a two-year period. Right, right. Jesus. And then when you're working, because... I've had a couple of clients over the years who were sort of morbidly obese and they always ask me, is there sort of a nutritional thing that you can do about kind of um, the uh, integrity of the skin when you lose that much weight? Yeah, and I'd say probably not. Yeah. You know, I think there's a point at which that's just expanded so much that there's no amount of elastin in the world that can sort of <laughs> yeah, pull sure. that back and particularly yeah. the older we get, right? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of that connective tissue is at that point degraded to a point where it's not going to necessarily come back so unfortunately surgery is the only option there sure because there was that it's that chinese herb isn't there was it guatacola or something like that it's called i think Guachicola, yeah 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 it wasn't that there was supposed to be some sort of research done on that where maybe not in that there may have been example but yeah like, like stretch marks and things like that yeah i'm not not sure i haven't really looked into into that at all but that's that's super interesting yeah yeah taking it back to the kind of layman your clients the everyday can you explain like because what I struggle with when I even propose this idea is people's backlash off, no, I need carbs. I get hungry. I get cranky. I get cravings. I get whatever they get. Can you just kind of put that into perspective? What's actually going on there when somebody gets that hangry, hungry, sugar craving? In a nutshell, we, we basically pattern ourselves to, to be reliant on, on sugar, to be reliant on carbohydrate. And when that's withdrawn... 
we, we often have an inability to uptake substrate into tissue effectively. We have an inability to use fat uh, as well as we otherwise could. And so really it is a, a process for a little time there while we're adapting of metabolic starvation. You know, even if we are... I mean, that can occur anyway, even if we are actually eating a lot. If yeah. we're not taking fuel effectively up into active functional tissue then we can still be practically starving. This is why I often talk about that idea of starving on a full stomach. Yeah, you're eating plenty, but maybe you're still not fueling optimally. And that's because we begin to distort the satiety signals that we have. We begin to distort our ability to uptake that fuel into the tissue that needs it. So that, okay, so then that's, that's where they start to feel the dip and the, the hunger and the crankiness. Yeah. What's your typical... Because I would tell people from my just pure experience with clients, th- two, three, four days, they should be back yeah. back feeling okay. Generally, if we're looking at a, a very low-carb diet, we would consider that that crankiness or even other adverse symptoms that they experience. We call that like keto flu or carb withdrawal yeah. flu or whatever. And that typically only lasts about three to four days for most people. Right. So, yeah, that's a, a, a pretty good estimate there. And then... Uh, you can test now. There's, there's a simple technology. Is it like a finger prick? Keto strip or something, isn't it called? Yeah, so it's exactly the same as a... It's actually the same machine as a blood glucose meter, blood yeah. glucometer. And you just put in a different strip. You put in a ketone strip. Same thing, just a little blood prick. And um, yeah, put that into the meter and it tells you how much ketones are in the blood. What's, kind of, what's an optimal range? That's a really good question. We, we would... To, to be in what we'd consider to be nutritional ketosis, you want over 0.5 millimoles of ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. So anything over 0.5, we'd consider nutritional ketosis. Yeah. Now, whether, whether higher is better is a real point of debate at the moment. A lot of people will try and be in deep ketosis, you know, mm. more and more and more ketones. I don't necessarily think that's always the best way to go, though, because what a lot of people end up doing is just to get their ketone levels higher, they end up eating a lot more. They end up force-feeding themselves fat to try and create these ketones. And if they're not actually benefiting in terms of their outcomes, like they're not feeling better, they're not running faster, you know, what's the point? You're basically just force-feeding yourself fat then. So I will always just look at it qualitatively. We'll sort of say, well, if if you're on a ketogenic diet, we want you to be over 0.5 millimoles. Right. That's probably where you're going to end up anyway if you're doing it right. But then where you actually end up doesn't really matter so long as you're feeling great and you're getting the results you want. Let's say that's losing body fat or correcting those blood markers. Sure. And then how much would it take in a kind of sedentary person who's just starting up this ketosis uh, journey? They've got their 0.5 millimoles and then... They go out at the weekend. They lose self-control. What, what's the talk there? What's the right get back on the horse? Yeah, I, I think the the less someone has done ketogenic diets and the less they've restricted carbohydrate and the less they've eaten you know, real food-based diets, the harder it's going to be to get back in. So let's say someone starts a ketogenic diet and they get into ketosis on Thursday and they go out and have a few beers and a plate of chips on Friday night, it's probably still going to take them exactly the same amount of time to get back in. Right. So whether they're really getting the benefits of a ketogenic diet, pretty, pretty variable. They're probably not, right? However, as we become more efficient, as we become more metabolically efficient, particularly if we've done this time and time and time again, it tends to become a heck of a lot easier. You know, I would say that even though I don't do ketogenic diets all the time, because I've used them so much and I'm consistently relatively low carb, if I want to go on a ketogenic diet, let's say I stop eating carbs now, mm. I'll be in ketosis tomorrow morning. Right. Because your body's used to it. And we think, I think at least, that that is a very normal natural state for the human. Because if you don't have fuel available, in a, a free living state, you'd go into ketosis. That's what would allow you to keep on going and keep on doing things without becoming a meal for a lion. Sure. And uh, when you say that you you don't do it all the time, is there a particular reason why you stop or is it just because you just really want some ice cream and some pizza and all the rest of it? I think I actually feel better with with some carbohydrate. Yeah. Uh, And I also like eating some carbs at night, right? (laughs) I like like treats at night. It's my thing. It's what I do. And it works. So I, I... 
I figure that the way I feel and the things that I naturally desire, if I can find a way to do that and still remain lean and have good-looking blood profiles and perform well, then I'll just stick with it. Sure. Is there, what are the variables, then between male, female, older, younger? Is there like a specific pathway you might uh, recommend to a young female as opposed to an old male or any differences there? Yeah, we, we would probably say that on balance, maybe guys are a little bit better adapted to ketosis. You know, uh, there's probably, it's not to say that women can't use ketogenic diets, they absolutely can, but there seems to be a higher proportion who might have real difficulty getting into ketosis or they might suffer, um, you know, a lot of stress as a result of being on the diet. The body's not really getting into ketosis, so it's having to tap into its stress response to free up sugar to use as fuel. And there could be potential negative effects for hormone status in some women. So, again, it comes down to evaluating the individual because some, some women will thrive on a ketogenic diet. So it's just about figuring out which ones will and which ones won't and basically working with the client as they get into that process so you can adjust it if it's not working. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. That's awesome, man. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, you sort of touched on it. How has your understanding and your best practices kind of evolved as you've gone through the last 20 years? Like, what, what are you doing now differently than what you did uh, when you were younger? Like, what mistakes did you make that you've learned from? I think the first mistake was in the very early days of practice of being way too focused on the macros. You know, I think being really focused on the macros without necessarily looking at the quality of the diet in general. And I know that that might sound a little bit washy for a lot of people, but the reason I say that is that, you know, you see nowadays a lot of people doing if it fits your macros, right? What I'll often ask them is, sure, it might fit your macros, but does it fit your micros? Do you know that you're getting enough vitamins and minerals? And do you know that you're getting enough prebiotic resistant starches and fibers, all those gut supporting kind of things? You know, are you really supporting your long-term health by doing that? And I certainly think in the early days of practice, I probably didn't do that. So now I've got a much greater focus on, first and foremost, for myself and for other people, eating real food, you know? I think that's now translated into finding ways with people that they can regulate their diet more easily, right? What I mean by that is that the perfect diet for someone, for someone physically, physiologically, is not necessarily the best diet for them. Yeah, because sure. if they can't adhere to it, it doesn't matter. And adherence is yeah, the biggest that's thing. Po- yeah, that's a good point. So satiety and limiting feeding windows, I think, are the, the next big things. And mindfulness as well, I think, is you know, a, a critical yet underappreciated thing in nutrition. We know its benefits for a whole bunch of other things. You know, Mindfulness has been studied for... Gee, a long time now, 50 years Mm. with a a lot of evidence. But I think we need to translate some of that into the nutrition space now because adherence and compliance is the biggest issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then how do you find, you must have some good meats and some good available food down in New Zealand. What part of New Zealand are you based? I'm from Auckland up in the north. And that's where you're working as well? Yep. So you've got healthy, gamey food down there. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, we are still like most you know developed nations we have a massive problem with obesity and we've got a growing problem with diabetes you know we are one of the more obese nations in the world we basically track in the same way as the states in australia and other countries so we do certainly have our challenges but we're lucky that particularly with with meats you know we have free range meat We, we don't have factory farming yet really so that, that's a good thing. You know, we, we can be much clearer in what we're doing. And I think that also changes the game a little bit with respect to the ecological aspects. You know, a lot of the models that we see for the impact of meat on the environment come from factory farming models. Yeah. That's completely different if you've just got cows wandering around on grassland. Sure. The grassland provides a carbon sink. The cows are wandering around eating, eating grass. You know, they're not being fed grain feed that needs yeah. to be grown using fertilizers and chemicals and all those types of things so it, it's pretty cool i think it's yeah. a, a good environment to grow up in living the dream down there and how do you know i mean there must be a big genetic difference in the in the kiwi population oh huge and this is one of the big areas that we're looking at is again that ethnogenetic stuff if we've got our 
Māori and Pacific population who are typically the ones most at risk of diabetes, they're the most overweight, most obese, and we're applying a diet that might work well for Northern European yeah. people, mm. it's, it's not appropriate. And we've seen that time and time again, it's just not appropriate. So, you know, we need to really look at the interventions that are going to help those most at risk. And we, we believe um, at the university that I work at or work with that the first intervention shouldn't necessarily be telling people to reduce something or increase something. Yeah. It should be to take a more qualitative approach to it. So eat natural unprocessed food. Eat foods that are appropriate to your traditions. Eat those foods with your family and friends. You sure. know, be mindful, those types of things. I think those conceptual aspects are often missing from dietary guidelines for health. Yeah, that's interesting that about like social integration, like just do it while, you know, eating. And because we, we say the same thing as in training, I made that point in my talk this morning, like look, train with people. Yeah. Do you know, like th- th- this is part of it as well, this whole kind of holistic sort of lifestyle, do you know. I think when we do that, we can get back to actually enjoying food as well. Yeah. I think, you know, people have got to this point where they feel like in order to get results, they need to see food as fuel. You hear it all the time in the yeah, fitness yeah, yeah. space, right? Oh, food's just fuel to me. It's like, wow, that's a boring existence. Because to me... <laughs> Food is my favorite thing. Yeah. I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat after dinner because that's when I have my treats, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that you say the difference between the cultures because uh, the genetics, because that's a big problem here. Here, some of the leading experts will be from maybe Northern European or, or from, the, from America or Australia or, or potentially New Zealand. Like that. But the population most at risk is the, the local Arabic culture, uh, genetic uh, predisposition. Um, so what kind of what kind of advice would you have for nutritionists here who are dealing with two very different gene pools almost um, before they even have an understanding of where the gene pools are based like what would you what would you tell them to be mindful of I think you've got to start with a quality approach you know you, you have to start with a quality approach to food in other words eating natural unprocessed food now I know that sounds like you could fall into the naturalistic fallacy right that natural's better than yeah. whatever but that's not the, the point. What I'm getting at is that when we look at the evidence around natural food type eating, so we've got good examples of that in the research from Paleo and Primal, and you know you, you might disagree with the silly names they give to them, but yeah, they're, yeah. they're a good way to study it. You give people a diet like the Paleo diet that's based on a compendium of natural food, and they typically tend to auto-regulate their calorie intake pretty well. In other words, they don't overeat. That's cool. Because again, we're getting to a point where if we can start to teach people to eat better foods in general and not have to worry so much about restricting, then I think there's going to be much better outcomes there. And it translates across those ethnic differences because people tend to start to choose foods that are more appropriate for them. Mm. So I think that's one one of the biggest things that we can start to apply immediately. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, I would use that's a similar analogy to that. Like if you're going to have 500 grams of cookies or biscuits and you've got 500 grams of carrots, yeah, you're probably going to chow down all those biscuits, all those cookies before you even realize. But you might get through 100, 150 grams of the, the carrots and then your, your body is telling your brain you're full. Exactly. Stop eating. And we saw that as a consequence of one of our studies a couple of years ago. It was really interesting because we want the research we're doing to be ethical right so we want to not just provide let's say a ketogenic diet to our participants we want it to be a a good ketogenic diet that's also going to support their health and things like that because the you know we don't want to put people into a state of bad health that's not what we're studying we're studying the effect of the actual diet but anyway we we had these guidelines for these people to eat at least minimum six plus fist-sized servings of vegetables per day and the reality is most people don't do that and when they started doing that we started getting feedback almost immediately saying, dude, I can't eat all the calories you've prescribed, even though it wasn't yeah, you know, yeah, a high-calorie yeah. diet at all. I can't eat all the calories you've prescribed because I'm so full of bloody vegetables. <laughs> yeah, right? This is cool, and this is that concept of crowding out. Yeah. You know, we, we Like crowding out okay. food. So we're yeah. crowding out the stuff that people often rely on with more nutrient-dense, more satiating, more filling foods. And then there's less ability to, to have the other stuff, you know. So as a first step, that's probably a really good place to be. Yeah, no. yeah that's, about, that's about my – where I, I'm comfortable talking to my clients about diet. You know, we'll talk, cut this out, cut that out, eat more of this, eat more of that, follow more of a whole food, real food, whatever you want to call it. 
We'll see how that goes. If they respond to that, great. If they seem like they still want more, they still want more, then we have we work with a nutritionist that will we'll speak. Okay, contact her, go yep. meet her, and off you go and get the real sort of in-depth stuff. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's what we're doing. It's a smart approach too because the way I look at it with nutrition, we should do as little as we need to do to get the results we want. Of course. You know, if that's you can true make, of all training, right? That's yeah, yeah. That's true of most things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If you can do make two changes to your diet and your blood markers are going to look beautiful and you're going to be lean and you're going to perform well and you're going to feel great, or you could do 10 things... Do the two things, yeah, man. The yeah, rest yeah, is wasted effort, and it's pr- it's likely to reduce your adherence because you're going to e- have to exercise more willpower, and willpower is limited. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, where can people find your stuff or your research, or where, where do you hang out online? Yeah, I need to tag in this thing. Uh, people can find basically all the links to what I do at my personal site, which is cliffharvey.com. And there they'll find links to the, the various things I'm involved with, whether it be research or my um, the Holistic Performance Institute, which is my tertiary college. We deliver continuing education for trainers and nutritionists. Cool. What's your Instagram? Good question. Yeah. I can't remember. No, it's, it's either... Um, it should be Cliff Doggy Dog, actually. Cliff Doggy Dog. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Um, and what have you got coming up? What's in your, your short term and your medium term? Do you give talks all around the world? Yeah, so I've... Um, been pretty busy this year been up in north america was in aussie a few weeks back um here obviously in dubai back to aussie and then back to speaking in new zealand but i'm delivering a two-day certification based on my latest book here in dubai tomorrow and the following day uh and then it's back to the grindstone back to the research we've got to finish off the study and then i'll be writing up uh, a lot of a lot of scientific papers in the next six months what's your book called the latest one's called the carbohydrate appropriate diet Okay, and that's the idea of that is to go beyond low carb diets and begin to figure out where your carb intake should be. So to figure out whether you're a carb responder or not, basically. And what are your previous works? Uh, there's a number of books. Some of them are based more around behavioural change and mindfulness. Uh, Choosing You was my first one. Then I had a um, Amazon bestseller, an Ashton Wiley finalist called Time Rich Cash Optional. A um, a lean startup guide for practitioners called Time Rich Practice a low-carb book that I wrote with Dr. Simon Thornley called Low Carb in Practice, and another book called 99 Things You Need to Know to Lose Fat. Wow. <laughs> and <laughs> so you're writing. And now, yeah, now you're doing more research papers. Yeah. Okay. I'm always writing, always yeah. writing, always speaking. It seems That's that way. Man. At least yeah. you've got all the, at least you found the time in the day to get it all done. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's always the way. All right. Well, thanks very much, Cliff. Thanks, guys. Um, it was fun. Awesome. Next time you're back in town, give us a shout, and we'll, we'll see what's happening, what's new with you then. Well, do. I appreciate having me on. You know, it's been a pleasure. We'll, no, we'll see awesome. you again soon. Really good.